Almighty Father, heaven of heaven and earth, the one true Lord, the eternal I am, you are indeed worthy. You're worthy of our praise and our devotion. For Christ sits on the throne. He is the Lamb of God. With all blessing and honor and glory and might, forever and ever, you will be praised. Lord, we affirm this morning that you're not a God who is simply far off, uninterested, and generally working in creation, but instead you're a God who's intimate and close. You're concerned with your amazing power, with every detail from the furthest blazing star in the universe to the quiet prayers and concerns of our children here in this room this morning. You're not our God in a general way, in a generic way, in a sweeping way. No, you have promised to save us and to call us and to draw us near as individuals, as persons who are distinguished and set apart for your glory alone. You have said that your saints are your delight and you have indeed cared for us and protected us and provided for us this past week in specific ways Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your special, distinct, particular care for each and every one of us. Even in bringing us here this morning, we confess we often live as if you are overlooking us, as if you're, you've turned aside, as if you're overwhelmed. And we confess, Father, that all of these things we feel in our own lives, but they do not exist with you. Lord, forgive us. And grant us grace and faith this morning. We may trust your sustaining care for us. And that we may live with confidence that you indeed are our refuge and our dwelling place. We ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Deliverer, our Savior, and our only Lord. Amen. Amen. Some of you may not know it, but you, each one of you, are theologians. That's a big $10 word. But we're all theologians because each and every one of us walk around and reside day in and day out with a concept or an idea of who God is. Each one of us um, have a, an understanding of, of who God is in your own head and you work out of that paradigm, that thinking process in your own hearts. And so in that way, all of us are theologians. We think about who God is. We consider who God is. Now, many of us may have thoughts that are biblical thoughts about God, and that's a good thing. Our understanding of God has been shaped by stories and things that we understand from the scriptures, and those are helpful, and those are good, and those are faithful for us to consider and think about God in biblical ways. However, Each and every one of us, no exception, have thoughts about God that are more influenced by our experiences and by our world than they are by the Bible. (laughs) And we have to be careful. Maybe some of you have said, or I know maybe some of you have heard, phrases like this. Well, my God wouldn't do that. Or, that is not the God I know. 
or or a statement that says um, this is I lost my place here. Statements like that remind us that we often are apt to create for ourselves a God from our own imagination instead of a God who is biblical. We have to be diligent. I want to maybe emphasize this by saying we have to be tenacious and relentless to make sure that our understanding of God aligns more with Scripture than with our imaginations. We're so apt to stumble into wrong thinking, wrong categories as we consider our God. And when we look at Scripture and we consider the Bible and what it says about God, we begin to realize very quickly that the, the, the God of Scripture does not cater to our sensibilities. He's not an emotional God. He doesn't coddle us. In fact, what we find when we go to Scripture and we begin reading our Bible about who God is, sometimes this God that we see in Scripture is abrasive. He's a God that, that we can't get our, our hands around. He's a God who's abrupt in his ways. And he's a God who does not um, ask us for our thoughts or feelings about him before he acts in certain ways. We have to realize he's God and that we're not. What he says is true and what we think and feel so often are not. And so for the last several weeks, we've been looking at the, um, about, about the, the plagues. See if I can get that right. Um of the Exodus story. Many of us have heard these. Many of us have seen these in Sunday school. But as we've been looking through these, we've divided them. There's ten plagues, and then there's, they're divided into, into three sets of three. And so the first three, we noticed over the last several weeks, and I want us to see, I want us to understand that those three plagues speak of the fact that God is the one and only true God of heaven and earth. I want you to notice this with me, if you will. Look with me in Exodus chapter 7, verse 17. Chapter 7, verse 17 is the first plague of water turning into blood. And it says this, Thus says the Lord, By this you will know that I am the Lord. Do you see that? This plague was for the purpose of demonstrating to Pharaoh, the Egyptians, as well as the Hebrews, that there is only one Lord, and it is the God of heaven, the God that's being displayed here. The, the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, the I am God that was, that was manifest and displayed to Moses on the mountainside with the burning bush, now is displaying himself to Egypt and to Pharaoh. And he is the Lord, there is no other. We see in the second plague, Exodus chapter 8, verse 10. Exodus chapter 8, verse 10. It says... And he said, tomorrow, Moses said, be it as you say. Why? Notice verse 10 of chapter 8. So that you may know, this is Moses speaking to Pharaoh, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. Do you see the exclusivity? Do you see the uniqueness of the display of what God is trying to do? In that particular plague. And in the third plague, we have the gnats. Chapter 8, verse 18. Notice with me, the magicians tried by their secret arts to produce the gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Verse 19. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. So Pharaoh's heart was hardened. There was this uniqueness. Now that the magicians are saying, we can't mimic, we can't redo, we can't duplicate these, these miracles that are happening by the God of Moses and Aaron, 
And so this is the finger of God that's unique, that's different. The Lord is revealing himself as the only one true God, the Lord of heaven and earth. And we have to admit that in our culture today, and sometimes even in our own hearts, the exclusivity of what we believe, specifically about Christ, is offensive. It's abrupt. It's harsh. Can all these other faiths and religions be wrong? What about all those other peoples that that genuinely believe in good things and are very moral and nice and sweet, raising their families, trying to do good things? Are are, are all of them separated from the Creator? Our Bible speaks clearly to this, without any reservation, that there's an exclusivity to the God of Scriptures and that there are no other rival deities, religions, or faiths. Isaiah 42.8 says, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I will not give to no other. I will give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Acts 4, the testimony of the apostles and the disciples that got them in trouble. The thing that, that, that caused the disciples to be thrown into jail was not that Jesus loves everybody. It's that Jesus alone is the way to salvation. That's what got them thrown into prison. So when the apostles say stuff like this in Acts 4, verse 11, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders which, you, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There is no other name but Jesus Christ whereby men can be saved. That exclusivity is harsh and abrupt. It's not what we would we would hear from the culture today. And so we see here this, this attribute of God, that God was wanting, our Lord was wanting the Egyptians to understand, that our Lord was wanting Moses and Aaron and the Hebrews to understand from our time in the Bible, and what the Lord wants us to understand as His people today, that we live in a world filled with idols and gods and deities and things that, that the, the culture is going after And they all bow to the one true God, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. That's offensive. So those are the first three plagues. And now we're going to be looking at the second three, which is the second category. The second three are the plagues of the flies, the livestock, and the boils. And these, the second unit, these second three, are also going to tell us and display to us a difficult attribute or a difficult characteristic of God. And that characteristic that so often is offensive is that our God is a God who distinguishes. He's a God who shows favor to some and rejects others. He's a God who elects and chooses by his own design and by his own will. This is not popular today. Why in the world would this attribute be the one that the Lord would want to show the Egyptians, Pharaoh, and God's people in the book of Exodus? Because it's absolutely vital for us to understand that our God is not one who is generally loving to each and every, or all people generally, kind of vaguely, kind of in an overarching way. But our God works in our lives according to our passage and according to our Bible. We find that God works in our lives in very intricate and intimate ways. He doesn't just have these big swaths of actions. But when we prayed this morning, God heard us. 
He's not just hearing voices coming from everywhere. But God is a God who distinguishes. He's a God who sets apart. He's a God who chooses. This is not a very popular attribute, but it's one that we have to lay before us very clearly in these next three plagues of flies, livestock, and boils. And it's the attribute that we're going to be looking at this morning as we consider these three together. So notice the, uh, the, uh, the three, and they're going to coincide. The three plagues are going to coincide with the three points of our message this morning, our text, just so we can get some order and understanding around um, our, our message this morning. So if you will, the three points are these. First, first is the distinguished. First, we're distinguished by our particular ceremony. We're distinguished by our particular ceremony. This is chapter 8, verses 20 through 32, and it's talking about the flies that are swarming there. Distinguished by our particular ceremony, and it's the plague of the flies. Number two, point number two, we're distinguished by our particular commerce. Our particular commerce. This is chapter 9, verses 1 through 7, and this is the plague of the livestock which die. Chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. And then point number three, We're distinguished by our particular comfort. This is chapter 9, verses 8 through 12. Chapter 9, verses 8 through 12. We're distinguished by our particular ceremony. These are flies. We're distinguished by our particular commerce, the livestock that die. And we're distinguished by our particular comfort. These are the boils, the the plague of the boils. Chapter 9, verses 8 through 12. Look with me, if you will. Point number one, distinguished by a particular ceremony. The emphasis really is, as we look at this, is that as this plague is being predicted, I want you to notice how clearly Moses is seeking to underscore why God's people have to leave Egypt. Notice with me, if you will, in verse 20 of chapter 8. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh as he goes out to the water and say to him. Notice now, this is, this is, the, um, this is the fourth plague, and it is... Moses is approaching Pharaoh at the water like he did in the first plague. So there's some similarities there. It says, say, thus, say, just, thus says the Lord, and this is what Moses is to tell Pharaoh, let my people go, why? That they may serve me. The idea here is that they may worship him, that they may offer sacrifices to the Lord, the God of heaven. He goes on in verse 21, he says, Or else, I will, uh, if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and your people and into your houses, and the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies, and also the ground on which you stand. Now notice that these flies, uh, we don't know exactly what kind of flies they are. In fact, what we have in the, in the original language is that there's these swarms, and there's swarms of all kinds of different flying, biting bugs. And so it speaks here of an incredibly horrific scene. And this is a day before um, screen windows and, um, and, and, and wonderful uh, air conditioning like we have now. The houses during this time at best would have maybe a piece of cloth hanging over it, but nothing that could eliminate these swarms of flies that were everywhere. This is simply the prediction where Moses is telling Pharaoh that if you do not let my people go and allow them to go and worship, notice the importance and the value that God's creating on this worship. He's willing to allow the Egyptians to be punished through this plague of incredible intense pain and suffering. Why? Because they refuse to allow God's people to worship and to serve him. And so in verse 22, though, I want you to notice this distinction that's being made. 
It says, but on that day, verse 22, that day that the Lord will send these swarms of flies, I will set apart the land of Goshen. The land of Goshen is where God's people lived. It was set apart from the actual where all the Egyptians lived. It was a unique place. We find out that this is actually where Joshua and, and Jacob actually resided. They went there in the end of Genesis, the end of, uh, end of uh, the, the book of Genesis. And it says, I will set apart the land of Goshen. This is where the Hebrews dwell. Where my people dwell, so that no swarms of flies shall be there. Why? That you may know, Pharaoh, that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. In other words, that this is the Lord's doing. This isn't just some epidemic that goes everywhere. See, it would make sense that if the flies were everywhere and all over the place, then it would be easy for Pharaoh then to say, well, this is just a natural occurrence. But Moses is saying this is going to be so distinct and so unique that when God comes, he's going to bring these swarms of flies... And it's going to be so unique and distinct in that when that happens, the people of God over in Goshen are not going to have these, and there's only one good reason for that, and that is that the, that the God of heaven, the Lord who is causing this, will be one who's showing a particular distinction and care for his people. And he's showing, let's note, make note, a particular judgment and condemnation for those who are not his people. Now, As we look at this in verse 22, it goes on and says, Thus I will put a division. Some translations, that word for division actually can also be translated redemption. I'm going to place a redemption between my people and your people. In other words, God's saying, I'm going to redeem them. I'm going to divide them. I'm going to make a distinction with them. He says, tomorrow this sign shall happen. The Lord here is making a division, a distinction. He is choosing to show his favor and care to the Hebrews, and he's choosing to show his condemnation and his judgment to the Egyptians. It goes on in verse 24. And verse 24, it's interesting, verse 24 is the actual event that takes place. In other words, all of this that we read at this point is Moses predicting to Pharaoh what's going to happen. And then everything after this, verse 25 through 32, is what is the fallout from these flies coming. Verse 24 is the only passage that actually speaks of what actually takes place. And it says in verse 24, And the Lord did so. In other words, he brought these flies. There came great swarms of flies into the house of Pharaoh and into his servants' houses throughout all the land of Egypt. The land was ruined. That word is, can also be translated destroyed, corrupted. And if you think of flies everywhere you can understand that that can very easily um, be very uh, difficult to eat and to do anything when these flies are swarming as they are. The whole land of Egypt will be ruined or destroyed or corrupted by the swarms of flies. Now let's make a careful um, um, understanding here. Is that the Lord has said throughout his scriptures, this isn't just what happens in Egypt. The Lord has said in his word that he's going to do this, and he has done this throughout history. And that this division between those whom he shows his favor and those who are wicked, those who do not receive his favor, is a, is a distinction that is of eternal consequence. These are foreshadowings of a great day when there will be a day when God will separate the sheep from the goats. There will be a day when God will separate the righteous from the wicked. There will be a day when God will make that distinction, and that will be a distinction that will be made for eternity, brothers and sisters. 
This is not a light matter. This is not something that will only be for a few days. Here, the, 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 the uh, horror and the turmoil that was taking place is simply foreshadowing God's displeasure with sin and his rightful judgment of it and his amazing grace to those whom he shows, chooses to show favor to, which are the Hebrews. We have in our statement of faith, which is a historic Baptist statement of faith, and it says this, Of the righteous and the wicked, this is chapter 17, we believe that there is a radical and essential difference between the righteous and the wicked, that such only as through faith are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and sanctified by the Spirit of our God are truly righteous in his esteem, while all such as continue in impenitence and unbelief are in his sight wicked and under the curse. Listen to the last line of this statement of faith. And this distinction, you hear that? This distinction holds among men both in and after death. This is an eternal distinction, brothers and sisters. We need to acknowledge that this is clearly portrayed to us in Scripture. It's predicted just as Pharaoh was being told by Moses that there will be a distinction, there will be a setting apart of his people and the wicked, the, those who are in Egypt, God's people. And it's interesting here that, it, that as Moses speaks here, he speaks of, notice in verse 21, it says, or else I will let my people go, or, or else if you will not let my people go, this is Moses talking about the Hebrews, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and your people. There's a clear distinction, brothers and sisters, between those who are his people, the Lord's people, and those who are not. And this distinction is of eternal consequence. Now, when this takes place, it, this ruining of all of the land, it absolutely drives Pharaoh insane. It drives him crazy. He is willing to do anything to get rid of these flies. And so he comes to Moses and Aaron, and he seeks to negotiate. And so we see in verses 25 through 32 his negotiations. It says in verse 25, Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Go sacrifice to your God within the land. Do you see what he's doing? He's saying, Now I want you to go and sacrifice. I want you to go serve. I want you to go and worship. But make sure you do that within our land, within our midst. Don't go too far away. And so here Pharaoh is seeking to negotiate with Aaron and Moses. They go on, and Moses says this. I would, um, Moses goes on and, and says in verse, uh, in verse 26, But Moses said, I would, It would not be right to do so. For the offerings we shall sacrifice to the Lord our God are an abomination to the Egyptians. Do you see that? It goes on. If we sacrifice offerings, if we sacrifice offerings abominable to the Egyptians before their eyes, will they not stone us? And what we find is that Pharaoh thinks they will. Because he says, okay then, let's do this. He goes in another direction. He gives them another offer of something else to do. In other words, the Egyptians would have indeed stoned them if they had offered their sacrifices in their midst. Brothers and sisters, we need to realize that worshiping the one true God, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, it's offensive to the world that we're as bad as the Bible says we are. It's offensive to the world that God is as holy and as, as independent as he says he is in Scripture. It's offensive to the world to say that Jesus Christ had to die on the cross and receive upon himself the wrath of God on our behalf. It's what the Bible calls scandalous. 
It's actually the word that's used in 1 Corinthians 1, 23, when it says, We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block. That word is scandalon to Jews. It's folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. We find in our passage this morning in 1 Peter chapter 1, it says Christ is the stone of stumbling and the rock of offense. It's a scandal for our world to see. It's, it's an abomination for them to think that they are so bad that it required a bloody cross for them to be saved. And so we need to realize that as we come and we worship this morning, that we are very clear. We're not just coming together as God's people to sing Kumbaya and, and build each other up and to, to tell everybody everything's okay. That's not what we do as God's people. That may be what the world thinks we do. But we come together to acknowledge our need before our God. That's why it's such a blessing specifically for us this morning as we came to the Lord in prayer. Because prayer, prayer is not something that we do naturally, is it? Every one of us come here every Sunday and we bow our heads in prayer. And we fight to keep our attention. You know why? Because we're convinced that we're sovereign and God isn't. We're convinced that it's us that has to do and to act and to perform and to do the things that need to be done. And that's the things that are most important. Prayer, prayer causes us to submit to God as the one who acts. And says, Lord, everything that I've done has messed things up. Everything that you will do will cause things to be better. Amen. And that the Lord himself is the one that's good. You see, that's offensive to a world who is filled with Facebook posts and tweets and commercials and quick little notes and texts and um, instant everything. It's hard when we live in that kind of world that wants everything instantly to be a people that God's called us to be, and that's a people who come to him in prayer and acknowledge that the bloody cross is where we find everything that we need to live and have our being. So we see here, as they were offended, it was an abomination to the Egyptians, verse 26 and 27. Pharaoh goes on and he says, well, you're right, you will be stoned if you try to do this within our midst, within the land. You must go three days' journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God, as he tells us. Do you see that? At the end of verse 27, Moses is insisting that they worship in the way that God has prescribed for them to worship. Not in the way that's invented by the men that are that specifically Pharaoh or anyone else. He's saying, this is how God told us we need to worship, and so therefore we need to worship as he tells us. And to be very clear that this is exactly how we're going to see as we go on throughout the rest of Exodus, and we're going through all of these tabernacle things that take place, and we talk about all these different details that the Lord gives his people so that they can have this tabernacle so that they can worship their God. Amazing detail. And how are they to worship? As God tells them to. Verse 28, that he gives another, another um, way that he can negotiate for the people of God not to be able to go too far but yet stay in the land because he wants these flies to go away. Pharaoh says in verse 28, I will let you go to sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness, only you must not go very far away. We want you to remain close. Plead for me. Plead for me. Brothers and sisters, this is exactly how so many who come to Christ want to live their lives. They want to come to Christ and they want to, they want to say, I want to trust in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior and repent of my sin and live in a way that God's called me to live, but I don't want to live too far away from the lifestyle that I used to live from. 
I only want to live just a, just a few steps away from what I used to live from. That way I can kind of keep my eye on the, the world that, and, and, and the life that I loved that's just a few steps away. And what we find here in our text is that Moses would have nothing to do with it. When God's people make a commitment to follow God and worship and to serve him, we must, we must completely abandon. We must pack our bags. We must cut ourselves off from the way that we used to live. Did you hear that in 1 Peter this morning? Chapters 1 and 2, where he says, you must be, now, now you're, you're holy. You've been called to be holy, set apart from this world, away from the passions and lusts that you formerly once lived in. You're now cut off from that. You're God's people now, distinct and set apart. You're a people that aren't supposed to be associated or close with in your lifestyle and in your pattern of life with the things of the world. In other words, they're distinguished, brothers and sisters, they're distinguished by their ceremony. We are God's people because we have been given the privilege of worshiping our God. What we do this morning defines every other aspect of our life. It's it's the center point. As God's people gather to worship, it's not just about you and Jesus. It's about each and every one of us here this morning coming with all of our struggles, difficulties, and and, and things that we come here with. And we're here this morning to reaffirm, because we can't do it by ourselves, that Jesus Christ is Lord and he is sufficient. And we come here to be encouraged by one another and by the faith of one another's life. Many of you come here this morning weak and struggling. There are others who've come here this morning that are strong in faith. And we're to lean on one another and help one another, find out how we can pray for one another. So what you'll find is that when we're done here this morning after the service, there are many who will just stand around and spend time talking, finding out about each other's lives. How can we pray for one another and encourage each other in Christ? You will not exist. You will not last without a congregation around you. It's it's unheard of to find... God, a person who's following Christ outside a body of believers that's encouraging and helping them in Christ. And so we seek to live together, not because it's fun or easy, but because that's what God's called us to, and it's best for us, even if it's sometimes difficult. Point number two, we're distinguished not only by our ceremony, but we're also distinguished by our commerce, our particular commerce. Look at the second plague, if you will, and it is the plague of the livestock which die. Notice, if you will, it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, chapter 9, verse 1, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of Hebrews, Let my people go, that they may serve me. Do you see, he keeps harping on this. He's making sure that this is the real reason why the plagues are happening is because God is so very jealous that his people serve and worship and honor him. This is not a side issue. This is front and center for our Lord. It should be for our lives as well. It should be for our lives as well. Our calendar should be very clearly a calendar that defines everything else out from, away from, and, and clearly defined by our opportunity to be able to gather and to serve as God's people and worship him. Verse 2, it goes on, For if you refuse Pharaoh and let them, to let them go and still hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will fall with very severe plague upon your livestock that are in the field, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and the flocks. Now we need to understand something that we may not understand from this time period. And it is this, the livestock for a household was the primary measure of their commerce. 
the condition and the number of a family's flock was directly connected to their ability to care for their family, and it was the direct source of wealth and value for them and to the society. The status of one's livestock was thought of in that day in very much the same way as a family financial statement would be in our day. We get our family financial statement, maybe from a bank or some other place, and we look through our financial statement, we can see and assess our, our wealth and our value and measure that in some way. The livestock for, God's, or for these people during this day was very much that way. The cattle, as it speaks of here, the horses and donkeys and camels and herds, weren't just things that they passed when they were traveling from one place to the next. It actually, this plague, affected the very security and provision of individual homes. It was very specific. We need to understand that there were husbands, there were men, Egyptian men, that had now their livestock were, were dying, and they were having to look into the faces of their wives and children and saying, we don't have it anymore. We forget that. We think, that, we think of these things as kind of supernatural, nothing else is going on. You know, these men who are trying to provide for their family are losing their very livelihood. And they had no way to provide for their family. It says here that these animals, this livestock, was dying. Verse 4, But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. We live in a very confusing world that espouses a false gospel called health, wealth, and prosperity. They take verses like this and say that if you're living for Jesus and you're doing what God's called you to do, then you'll never have any heartache or turmoil. It's a lie. If you don't believe that, come and talk to me and, and my family for a little while. Come and talk to so many of the families that are here today. Our struggles and difficulties are not due to faithlessness, even though it could be, but our struggles and difficulties are because we live in a broken world where sin has affected every aspect of our, of our world. And yet, in the midst of all of that, the Lord is good and he cares for us. He cares for us in our struggles and our difficulties so that our commerce and our wealth and our value isn't based on what we get in our statement each month from the bank. Our value and our commerce and our wealth is based on what God has done for us in Christ. And we can have great, wonderful blessings, or we can have very little, and yet, blessed be the name of the Lord, for he is good. You see how God here is saying that he's making a distinction between Israel and Egypt. In this case, he's saying, I'm going to keep your livestock, Israel, from dying, and I'm going to make sure their livestock dies. And God says, I'm going to do all of this so that my people can worship me, and so that he can be seen as the Lord, the God over all of these things. And so then what happens is in verse 5, it goes on and says, And the Lord set a time saying, Tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. Notice what it says. And the next day, verse 6, The Lord did this thing. All the livestock of the Egyptians died, and not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. Notice there was no Moses or Aaron holding their staff over anything. There wasn't Moses or Aaron doing anything like they were previously. Right now what we have is the Lord and his providence out of nowhere doing this, and it's clearly the hand of the Lord, which is what was predicted. And then it goes on. And Pharaoh sent, and behold, 
Not one of the livestock of Israel was dead. In other words, Pharaoh wanted to know. He wanted to prove this prediction. Is it true that just our livestock are dying? Or is it that Israel's livestock is dying as well? So Pharaoh sent someone to go and check out and see what was happening to the livestock of Israel. And he found that it was true that God himself was the one causing incredible um, heartache and difficulty, the death of the livestock among the Egyptians, but none among God's people. We know that the book of Exodus was written and handed to a generation of young Hebrews that were getting ready to go into the promised land. They were getting ready to come out of the wilderness that they had been living in, in tents and kind of wandering as exiles for so many years, and they were told to go into a land of Canaan where there's giants there, in other words, large men, large populations, incredible cities that were fortified. These were tent dwellers, the Hebrews were. They were to be going to places like Jericho who had incredible walls, And they were supposed to be going into this land and taking it over, conquering this place filled with cities, these these vagabonds, these guys who've been wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years, who knew nothing but shepherding and caring for one another in the wilderness. What were these first hearers understanding when they listened to this passage? They said, our God is one who will care for us, one who will protect us, one who has called us out and made us distinct, and he's a God who will provide and protect his people who seek to be faithful. Yesterday in the men's Bible study, we looked at Psalm 91, and it says this, because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the most high, who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. The first hearers of this story, these plagues of Exodus, they were going into the, into the uh, promised land. And us today, brothers and sisters, don't we need to know that with all the mayhem and craziness and chaos that's in our world, that our God is not one who sees all of this as out of control, but instead he's distinguishing his people, and he's caring for us, and he's loving us. We need to acknowledge that our commerce is not the commerce of the world. We don't live and die for the things that we have and that we can possess. We live and die because we have a refuge and a safe place called the fortress, a dwelling place with our God, who is our very provision who is the one who's caring for us when we can't care for ourselves. Finally and thirdly, notice the distinction and the distinction that's being made by a particular, our particular comfort. This is the third plague, and it's the shortest in length in way of text of all the plagues that we have. This is the sixth. These are boils. Some translations actually translate this as skin ulcers. It's really hard to imagine. How devastating, how torturous, and how much suffering and agonizing was taking place with this sixth plague. And the Lord said, verse 8, to Moses and Aaron, Take handfuls of soot from the kiln, and let Moses throw them into the air in the sight of Pharaoh. It shall become fine dust over all the land of Egypt, and become boils breaking out in sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. So they took soot from the kiln and stood before Pharaoh, and Moses threw it in the air, and it became boils breaking out in sores on man and beast. Is this the God that we worship? 
than we serve? You see, we don't think about those things. He's a God that's just. He's a God that's righteous in every way. And yet he's a God of judgment. He's a God who distinguishes between his people and those who are not. This may seem offensive. It seems that it seemed very offensive to the magicians, verse 11, and the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils. Know this, this is how all those, these magicians are the ones that kept trying to duplicate what God was doing in the plex. And finally, the magician says, we can't stand before the presence of God. And that's how all who seek to, that's, all, that's what happens to all who seek to come up, come up against our God. They will eventually not be able to stand. All those who seek to oppose our Lord, they will seek, eventually be, able to, be unable to stand before our God. And so it says here that the magicians were not able to stand before Moses because of the boils. For the boils came up on the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. So even the magicians were racked with this agony of the boils, the skin ulcers. And yet, in God's very difficult providence, we can't figure out why. It says that in verse 12, the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. Do you see how incredibly opposed to the things of the Lord that our hearts are? We relate so so easily to the, we, we like being the Hebrews that are being benefited by not having all these plagues upon us. But too often as we read the scripture, we see that our hearts are so much like Pharaoh's. It's interesting because in our Confession of Faith, this was one that was written in 1689, so it's a real old Confession of Faith. It's the London Baptist Confession. It says this concerning the providence of God. Chapter 5, Article 6. God, as the righteous judge, sometimes blinds and hardens wicked and ungodly people because of their sins. He withholds his grace from them, by which they could not have been enlightened in their understanding and had their hearts renewed. Not only that, but sometimes he also takes away the gifts they already had and exposes them to situations that their corrupt natures turn into opportunities for sin. Moreover, he, the Lord, gives them over to their own lusts, the temptations of the world, and the power of Satan, so that they harden themselves in response to the same influences that God uses to soften his people. Did you know that hardships and difficulties will either harden you toward God or soften you before God? And that's an incredible distinction, is it not? The very next article in this statement of faith says this, listen, the providence of God in a general way includes all creatures. Did you hear that? It includes all creatures, providence of God. But in a special way, it takes care of his church and arranges all things to its, the church's, good. In other words, the Lord is distinguishing. The Lord is electing. The Lord is choosing. The Lord is ordering all of his providence to care for his church and arranges all things for the church's good. When we look at these plagues and we notice the hardship and difficulty that the Lord is placing upon these people, we have to ask the question, why do we not have these? 
If this is the right and just punishment upon sin and rebellion and hardening of our hearts, then why do we not possess these hardships and these difficulties, these struggles? Because they are just indeed. The Lord is showing us this morning that we're a distinct people. They were set apart, not because of something we have done, but because of what God has done for us in Christ. You see, the cultural ceremonies, the systems of commerce and provision, the paths for comfort and wellness and health that the world has, we no longer have. What we find as those who've placed our faith in Christ, we find that we have repented and turned away from trusting in our own ritual and ceremony. The reason, the reason we're here this morning is because we're made to worship God. But don't make the mistake that everybody that's out there this morning that doesn't ever come to church on Sunday, they're not worshipers. They just worship all kinds of other foolish stuff that isn't worthy of worship. They they give their lives to all kinds of other things that are created things that are not worthy. So their ceremony is true nonetheless, but yet it's not true in the sense that it has the right and appropriate object, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. The world out there has their own system of commerce, and they seek to live in such a way as to lift it up and say those who are wealthy and have all kinds of things are valuable and wonderful assets to our society. And those who are poor and have nothing, they don't have as much value. The world thinks that way. Doesn't the world go after comfort and wellness and health in amazing ways? And yet when we trust in Jesus Christ, we find that the Lord is the one whom we worship, a different kind of ceremony. The the Lord is the one, Jesus Christ is the one who we find our refuge and our dwelling place, our all in all, all that is good and right and valuable in us is because of what Christ has done for us on the cross. This is a different kind of commerce from the world. And our soul's satisfaction and joy, our greatest comfort, is in Jesus Christ. This is a different kind of comfort than the world. In other words, brothers and sisters, we're distinct. We're distinct, those who have been called out by Christ. So it says in 1 Peter 2.4, As you come to Christ, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. You see, when we place our faith in Jesus Christ, who is the one true Savior and Deliverer of all humanity, the one who God says is chosen and precious, then you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, a holy priesthood. In other words, we then become distinct, distinguished, We become those whom God shows his favor on because we have trusted in Jesus Christ, because we've repented of all of those other paths to success and ceremony and commerce and comfort. And we've said, in Christ is our all in all. For to him and through him and for him are all things. Let us pray together.